Welcome back to episode three of the product positioning mini series, also known as how I position that. I realized when we launched this, we never really gave it its own identity because it's here on the Product Marketing Experts podcast, but the original idea was to call this series how I position that. So I'm gonna start referring to it as that moving forward. If you listened to last week's episode with Tamara from Shopify, she recommended Lindsay Bayok, the CMO at Pluralsight, as someone I should interview next for this series. Really excited that she agreed to participate because while she's a CMO now, she's a highly experienced product marketing leader. Lindsay has also written extensively about product marketing on her Medium account. I highly suggest you check out her articles such as The Four Pillars of Product Marketing. It's a really useful breakdown of the four most important pillars of the role and the work PMMs should be focused on within each. Now, before we begin the episode, special thank you to Sharebird for producing this episode and all episodes of the mini series. Sharebird is a peer mentoring platform for product marketers. It's the place to discover on-demand resources to help you with your product marketing career. If you have any feedback on any of these episodes, things you liked, things you want to hear more or anything else, please email podcasts at sharebird.com. All right, without further ado, let's go. So welcome back to the series. This week, I'm really excited to be chatting with Lindsay Bea from Oralsight, the interim CMO. Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation today. Thanks so much, Dan. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. Let's get started right at the beginning with my favorite first question to ask. What is your top level positioning statement for Pluralsight? Yeah, Pluralsight helps tech teams build better products by knowing more and working better together. We're the tech workforce development company. And we actually spoke earlier this week. We were talking about this conversation and there was something really interesting. There was like this one word when you were working on your positioning for Pluralsight. This one word basically transformed the way people perceived Pluralsight. Could you explain that? Because that was really interesting. Yeah, sure. I'm a big fan for those who know me of, I say, hashtag words matter because they're so important. And, and the comment that you're referencing is actually about our flagship product, which is what we're most known for, Pluralsight Skills. So Pluralsight Skills is the technology skills platform. Pluralsight Skills helps technology leaders and their teams consistently deliver by being able to adopt new tools and build critical tech skills. So I started with Pluralsight over four years ago. And when I joined, the company positioning was roughly that we did hardcore developer training. We serve the developer and IT market. And the charge at the time was, okay, the company had been pretty successful up to that point, had grown organically in the B2B space, and we really needed to go move up market into the enterprise. And my charge at the time was, okay, we need positioning and messaging to accomplish that. So how do we take this really great product and go take it into the enterprise? And we did a bunch of research and what we quickly realized is that the word training means something very specific to people. And I like to just ask, Dan, do you like training? No, I do not like training because training is always mandatory, right? Right, right. No one really, 
no offense, but to, to some training folks, there are great training teams and companies out there, but the initial kind of visceral reaction to the word is not always positive. And at the end of the day, we're a software product. Yes, we have content we deliver through that, but we're software product. And so at the time, and this is four years ago, our first positioning pivot with Pluralsight was to say, all right, were the tech learning platform. And that was a really critical pivot to better articulating what we were all about because look, developers love learning. They love learning new things. They're driven by curiosity. We made it clear that we were for more than just devs, which was really important. And by talking about it being a software product and not a training product, we were actually able to better clarify who the audience was for this. And look, training can have a lower value to it just in terms of it being a, a required <laughs> mandatory thing. And so being a software product is definitely more valuable. So anyway, that's kind of the early days on that positioning shift from hardcore training to being more platform oriented. And we've since done another pivot on positioning to the tech skills platform. Yeah, I love that. And this is such a great way of opening up a conversation about positioning and, and we're going to get into messaging and copy and, and, and those things as well. But it seems so minor, right? But it's true. I mean, like training learning, that's a, a very applicable example to everybody, right? If I'm being told I got to do this training, you know, that's one thing, but I love learning. I love reading. Right. I love taking courses. Like that's a totally different thing to me. So I just love that as an example. That's such a good, like subtle thing. And that's a great way to start this conversation about positioning messaging. So my next question is frameworks. And you have this really interesting frameworks. One thing to note is that you manage a team of 120 marketers, which is amazing, but I'm sure very challenging when it comes to stuff like positioning, because positioning, obviously, it's not even just your marketing team, it's your whole go to market team. So I'm sure there's a huge sales team and other people that support with that. But you have this three tiered positioning and messaging framework that I want to talk about. But before we even get there, can we talk about the difference between positioning and messaging? Because this needs to be, we've talked about it before a little bit on this mini series, but we need to talk about it more. What is the difference between positioning and messaging? Yeah, great question. So positioning, well, I'll back way up and say, I think sometimes people think that product marketers do copy, that we're copywriters. And look, we can in a pinch, but that's not the job. And the way that I talk about what product marketing does from a positioning and messaging standpoint is we are like the language architects for marketing. And our job is to lay that groundwork that then copy, design, creative, the rest of the brand team, the campaigns teams can build upon. But if you don't have that positioning, that's really the foundation, everything else falls apart. So in my mind, the positioning is the most clinical language exercise that you can do for the company where, like we said, words matter. Every word matters when you're looking at your positioning and it should be somewhat painstaking because you're really trying to articulate exactly who you are, who you serve, what's unique to you and what you don't do. And so at the end of the day, positioning is really a strategy exercise to help you set the trajectory of the company or the product that you're building. Messaging then comes in and articulates how you explain those key top line messages, usually three or so, like what are the three hooks or themes or kind of differentiated language that you're using 
to express your positioning out into the marketplace. So positioning is really about getting it down to one or two sentences that articulate who you are, what you do, how you serve your audiences, and then messaging wraps around that. Okay, then let's get into this framework, which I'm really interested to learn more about. We, we talked a little bit about it previously, but you have this three-tier I'm just going to call it a positioning slash messaging framework. I don't know if you have a formal name for it, but you were explaining to me earlier because you have brand positioning, you have two different products, you have features, your development team is building stuff. So could you walk us through this three-tiered framework that your team uses at Pluralsight? Yeah, sure. We have three kind of levels that we look at. So we look at positioning for the company, positioning for our core products, and then we have messaging docs that we use for features of those products. So that's sort of the three tiers. So company or brand, product, and then feature. And then we have frameworks built out for each. The other thing I would share is that we make a distinction between what we call messaging houses and messaging docs. So we'll have a, a house built at the company or product level that includes this kind of clinical framework for positioning, and then a more kind of easy to articulate, plain speak version of that positioning, more like the elevator pitch, and then these messaging pillars that then support that positioning. So we'll do a messaging house for kind of the big stuff, and then we have more simple, but not less rigorous messaging docs for features. I'm really curious how your product marketing team manages these different assets, right? The messaging house, the messaging docs, you have the top level positioning for the brand, which I imagine they're not making consistent updates to I imagine that's sort of, it is what it is. And as you said to me previously, like those, you can't be changing that every quarter, otherwise it's never going to work. Right? Yeah. Nothing's so, going to stick. Yeah. Nothing's no, going to stick. Yeah. Positioning's yeah, totally. a long, yeah. Positioning's a long game. I mean, Maybe if you try it and it's off and it's really not working, maybe you iterate until it does stick. But if you really want it to stick and create any kind of signal in the noise in the marketplace, it's a commitment. You got to ride that out for a while. So yeah, we'll do annual refreshes and we'll do some evaluation to make sure we're not falling behind. And our products, our company strategy are always evolving. So we want to ensure that we're maintaining alignment. But yeah, if you do it right, hopefully you're not changing that top level positioning every quarter necessarily. The messaging, I will say, can change more frequently, really to keep up with the market and your customers. But it's really an exercise in patience and creating that drumbeat. And also with messaging updates, probably part of it is trends, right? Market trends and even worldwide trends, the pandemic, remote work, right? Like your messaging might change to fit, like your positioning might be like, we're really well suited for remote. And maybe your messaging is changing around that trend on a somewhat more regular basis, right? Have you seen that happen? Messaging changing and, and making updates to it based on trends in the market or, or trends in current events? Yeah, sure. And I think there are definitely key messages that evolve more quickly. The way that our frameworks work, we have these three messaging pillars, and those have a longer life cycle than maybe some of the key messages where like this time last year, everyone was scrambling to figure out how to work from home. So a lot of brands 
change to really hit on work from home messages and how their products could help support in that. So yeah, definitely key messages change some of the more foundational messages for who you are in the marketplace probably change a little less frequently. So here's a question. I'm really curious about this because you have a a much larger marketing team than most of the people that I've spoken with for this mini series. I'm assuming you have a pretty decent size product marketing team. And I'm just kind of curious, like how does your product marketing team manage the messaging houses, the messaging pillars, updating messaging, feature rollout, new launches and stuff like that. And then what is your involvement with that as well? Because obviously you care a lot and probably the owner of that top level brand positioning because you are the CMO, but I'm curious how your team manages messaging. I guess it's positioning too, but really the messaging on a regular basis, like what are their processes to to manage that? Sure. Our product marketing teams moved into our product teams. So our two core software products are Pluralsight Skills and Pluralsight Flow. Between the two products, I'd say maybe we have about 12 or 15 product marketers. And then within marketing, we've got some folks that, like I said, own that top level brand positioning and messaging. So again, when we use these frameworks, the frameworks don't change. The product marketers work really closely with product management sales, doing a ton of research to inform both customers and non-customers to inform those messaging documents for any, we'll call them significant features as they're being built and then doing refreshes as the products and the features evolve. And then, like I said, we look at that core positioning, doing a a revisit or a refresh, or at least revisiting it to see, you know, maybe it doesn't need to change on an annual basis. So let's talk about research then a little bit. You had mentioned to me previously that research is constant. What do you mean by that? What is constant? What are the activities? How is the product marketing team constantly doing research and what does that look like? Yeah, sure. So back in the day when I led the team and we were much smaller and we had a sales call quotas. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Been there. Done that. (laughs) Uh, Where you have to listen to the sales team. You got to listen to the sales calls. Gong, shout out to Gong. They've solved that and made that a whole lot easier. You can kind of pick and choose. I would just say, look, product marketers, if they're going to be great at their job, really have to stay in touch with the market. And so that can take many forms, qualitative research, and interviews. There are firms that can book those calls with you, customer calls, quantitative research, market studies, customer surveys. There are endless options to stay on top of what's happening in the marketplace and really be that pulse of how things are are moving and changing. Now with this, you wrote a, a blog post last fall, which you shared with me about the four pillars of product marketing. I actually think that's super relevant to what we're talking about right now. One of those pillars is positioning, but could you walk us through those pillars real quick? And I think this, I'm going to guess this fits into the intelligence phase, which is probably where product marketers are spending the bulk of their time, right? Or a constant that they're always doing on a weekly basis. And that really a big part of that is probably research. Right. Yeah, sure. Thanks for making and mentioning the post. So I just get asked a lot, how do you define product marketing? So I thought I'd write it down. 
I'm sure. Your product marketer's favorite question. <laughs> right. What do, what do you do here? And so, yeah, so I broke it down. In my mind, it's really these four pillars, which hopefully simplifies things. The first is intelligence, which is really all of the research and buyer personas. Second is positioning. Third is launch. And fourth is enablement. And that's when folks are like, what does product marketing do? That's the way that I break it down for them. And you're right. The reason that I have intelligence first is because you can't create positioning in a vacuum. You can't just divine (laughs) what your company positioning should be. It's got to be informed by your customers or your future customers. All right. So you mentioned buying personas. I'm very curious on your take here uh, about buying personas, because when it comes to to positioning, of course, segmentation is really important and targeting is really Mm -hmm. important, but different positioning experts have different opinions about personas. Some say they're useless and they're not worthwhile. You clearly in this post outlined that buying personas are important. So what do you mean by buying personas and, and what role does it play in your positioning? Yeah, sure. I think the reason people can get anti-persona is because they're referring to really poorly crafted persona dogs. (laughs) Like the stereotypes, the overgeneralized caricatures of people. I mean, yeah, those are bad. I'm not a fan of those either. That's definitely not what I mean here. I think really understanding your buyers is the core Who are they? What do they really care about? What problems are they solving? How do we articulate what we know about the segment of the market that we're going after? And look, I do think some level of documentation of these buyers and what they care about is important, not just for product marketing, but honestly as a tool to enable and empower the copy team, the campaigns team, the sales enablement team, even product managers. Maybe you've got some product manager that builds stuff that's usually for users. Even they still need to know who the buyers are that are ultimately signing up for your product. And all these folks aren't going to go out and do all their own original research. And so I do think it's a helpful tool to help educate the company about who you're going after but it's gotta be grounded in the problems that they care about, what they're solving for, what they need, uh, and ultimately what they're hiring your product to solve. So you mentioned user personas, maybe other stakeholders Mm -hmm. as personas. So what is the difference between a buying persona and a user persona and how would a product marketer use those in different ways? Like, is it really product management owns the user persona and product marketing owns the buying persona? And that's the difference or am I getting those confused? Yeah, sure. It depends a little bit on how you've got the roles and responsibilities carved up between product marketing and product management. But I would say that user personas are, okay, who's the end user? Someone who probably isn't part of the buying decision, but is driving usage, needing to solve a problem with your product. The buyers may use your product once a year, once a quarter, they may not log in, but ultimately they're the ones that are trying to quantify the value that they're getting because they're signing the checks at the end of the day and probably putting their neck out, choosing you over someone else. So 
when you've got a more complex sale and you've got a larger group of stakeholders, people who influence the deal, people who ultimately make the decision, and then people who are using it, you just need to get really clear on who are all those folks, what roles do they play, and know how you're addressing or speaking to them through your marketing. Okay, so now I'm really curious about rollout of either, well, you have your positioning, but it's really messaging that you're going to be rolling out and, and trying out different outputs for that website, content, advertising, et cetera. How do you know when that's working? What are you looking for signals, basically, once you've launched a new messaging to understand if it's actually working and helping you get that, whatever you've identified as your market, helping you get those people in the door? What are those signals that you're looking for when you launch new messaging? Yeah, sure. I'll tell you the best hack for messaging. If you listen to enough customers, you can usually find some patterns in how they articulate what they're trying to solve. And then you just put that on your website. <laughs> so the best messaging is just really using the language of your customers. So it should resonate if it's what they would say in the first place. But I will also say, I think one of the highest forms of praise is if you come out with new positioning or messaging and then your competition starts to copy it. I think that's when you know you've got something really good. Yeah, I love that as an example. And I think in several of the startups I've worked at, when we've seen our competitors or especially our chief competitors start using that messaging or you find a good hack for that actually is when they bid against your branded keyword. So if it's Pluralsight and they're bidding on that keyword and then they have the landing page and says Pluralsight alternative or whatever it is, oh, yeah. and then you read theirs, <laughs> when they're using the messaging, that's actually usually a pretty good sign on that landing page. That's a good hack. If you're at that scale and, and your competitors are doing that, that's a great yeah. place to go look for that. Yep. Awesome. Okay. I have a couple more questions. This is what we call the uh, the lightning round. And it's really just two questions. <laughs> so it's not actually that many, but the first one I want to ask was what's one book that a product marketer must buy if they're going to own their company's positioning, if they're going to be in charge of positioning for their company. And obviously, as we know, positioning isn't marketing owned, maybe marketing shepherd, but it's owned by the entire company, the entire business. But what would be a book that you would recommend to a product marketer if they're going to be in charge of their company's positioning? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to go maybe a little out of left field. I don't know. I'm going to recommend Shoe Dog. Ooh, good uh, one. And here's why is because the beginning of that book telling the story of Nike, they talk about how so much of it was born out of a love of running and their audience and really just paying homage to that community. And then all of their kind of go to market, if you will, <laughs> from those early days was really anchored to that. And I think that's such a key part of positioning. So I'd recommend Shoe Dog. Yeah, it's a great one, especially, I mean, it's a, the first part of that book, the whole first part is like how humbling it is to start a business, right? With especially supply chain. I mean, in the world of yeah. software, it's different, <laughs> but especially with supply chain and and getting the manufacturers in Japan and this and that and all the, the things that Phil Knight had to go through. That is a great recommendation. I've heard a lot of great recommendations for this. Most of the, these so far have actually not been positioning books. They've been other books that like are just help people get the frame of reference. Outliers was another example, which I think is another good example of just 
just think differently, which is definitely a good mindset for product workers for positioning. So, okay, cool. My next question, second question, last question in the lightning round here is who is another product marketing leader that we should interview for this series on positioning? Yeah, great. I would recommend Corey Federer at Front. Corey's a great guy. We go way back. I think he'd be fascinating. Awesome. All right, Corey, hopefully you're listening. Funny enough, Lindsay, you came to us by this question. I posed this question to Tamira Neeson at Shopify and she recommended you, which is awesome. I'm glad she did because this has been an awesome conversation. I think really valuable for me. I have notes as I always do. I take notes as we have these conversations and and I think the audience will feel the same way. Awesome. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much, Dan. Thanks so much for taking the time. All right, hope you enjoyed this episode with Lindsay, the CMO of Pluralsight. Next week, we will be back for episode four. I can't believe we're already on the fourth episode. This time, I'll be sitting down and chatting with Daniel Cooperman from Atlassian, so make sure you subscribe. Also, if you're loving the podcast, we'd love for you to write us a review. The views mean a lot to us. You can do that wherever you listen. And a special thanks to the Sherbert team for producing this episode and all episodes of the miniseries. All right, see you next week.